So welcome to the Performance Project series of podcasts for the RCS Ed. Uh, I'm Ken Walker, I'm a surgeon and uh, trainer and uh, education researcher in Inverness. And with me is uh, Rachel Faulkner. Hello, um, I'm a senior vascular trainee and I'm currently completing a PhD which has looked at designing and delivering a programme of technical skills simulation using some novel hydrogel models. And also Steve Yule. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hi, Rachel. I'm Steve Yule. I'm the Chair of Behavioural Science at the University of Edinburgh. and I'm really interested and excited about non-technical skills in all walks of life. And we're really delighted to have with us uh, today Professor Roger Kneebone of Imperial College, where, where he directs both the Centre for Engagement and Simulation Science and the Centre for Performance Science. And uh, Roger's uh, recent book, Expert, uh, is a great read and has been very popular amongst surgeons and uh, others. So welcome, Roger. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us. We, we first got to know your work, actually, when we were starting to do quite a lot of simulated ward round work with uh, surgical boot camps and the like. And uh, you wrote a lot about uh, what's important for suspension of disbelief, you know, what matters and what doesn't. And uh, don't say just pretend there's a Venflon there, but equally you don't need to have a whole anaesthetic machine in the corner and that sort of thing. So we were very influenced by you. That was very helpful. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. And um, Expert was your first book for a more general readership. Um, with much of your previous writing geared to more academic audience. Did you enjoy the change? Yes, I enjoyed it enormously, actually, but it was a, it was a very interesting experience because, as you say, I'd, I'd, I'd written quite a number of, of, of things about, <clears throat> about education, about simulation, about various approaches that I'd been exploring, but they were, they were framed in, uh, as, as, as papers or essays. or uh, you know, they, they, were, they were looking at one one component of a bigger picture, really. Uh, and they were, uh, because they were mostly in, in sort of medical journals, they were fairly short. They were perhaps 1,500, 2,000 words, that, that kind of thing. And so this was the first time I'd had an opportunity and a challenge, really, of putting together um, a whole lot of ideas I'd been thinking about and exploring at an individual level, but trying to put them together in a... In a uh, in a way that made sense, partly making sense in, 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 in weaving them together to make a, a sort of composite story, but also, I hope, making sense to people who weren't medical or scientific insiders, people who had a, a general interest, but, but maybe no specific um, sort of experience of the, of the world of, of healthcare from a professional's point of view. And so that raised all sorts of challenges for me in how to frame that and I, I tried out a number of different approaches before settling on on the one I chose at the end which was to really to weave together three strands uh, to try and make sense of this idea of what it means to become expert not not thinking so much of specific areas of of expertise although they come into it of course but but what it means when people become expert and so I wanted to um, I wanted to tell the story of of what that means, uh, and I, I drew together um, insights into many many different people, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a, in, a, in a little while, from areas mostly outside medicine altogether, um, and and I also drew, of course, on 
on, on what was in the literature and what other people had written and books and, and things that I thought would be relevant or illuminating. But I also wanted to, uh, I wanted to move beyond uh, sort of an outsider's view of of this process of knowing nothing about something and, and then at the end knowing so much that you can pass it on to other people. Um, but I wanted to explore the sort of inside story. And for that, I drew on my own experience uh, as a clinician and as somebody who's tried various, you know, a number of different interests that I thought would be relevant to the story. And I tried to to weave those together um, to make sense for a reader who was coming newly to this idea. And it was a challenge. Uh, and one of the challenges was exactly what you were saying, was was moving from from these these small elements of a picture to trying to uh, to shape and put forward the whole picture. That's that's fascinating, and and I think for anyone in the audience who hasn't been aware of your broad ranging career, you've previously been a surgeon in South Africa and then a GP in in Dorset in England, and latterly an academic in London. And as you have said perhaps this experience of acquiring expertise in these um, different fields has has given you a lot of insight. Uh, I was wondering what particularly triggered the change between these in each instance. <laughs> yes, I often wonder about that myself. So, so the, the, first, the first one <clears throat> that I did was to, was to, <clears throat> uh, to become a surgeon. And so I'd, I'd been a medical student in this, in this country. I'd practiced for a few years doing junior hospital posts and I, I really wanted to uh, to become a surgeon. I spent a year teaching anatomy as a, as a demonstrator, then did some junior jobs and and knew that I needed to gain some uh, a, a, a broader, wanted to gain a broader uh, experience. And so I had the opportunity to go uh, at that stage to South Africa, Southern Africa. Uh, initially it was going to be for a year, but it was so interesting that um, I ended up staying for, for, for five years, a little over that, and com- completing my, my specialist training there in, in general surgery, but actually it was largely trauma surgery. It was, um, to begin with, in, at Baragwanath Hospital in, in Soweto, now Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital in Soweto, which at that time uh, was one of the most violent places in, in the world. It's still pretty violent, I, I think. Very high incidence of, of, um, of knife and, to a less extent, gunshot wounds where I, I sort of got quite a wide experience of, of, of trauma surgery, emergency surgery. And then I moved to, to Cape Town and then subsequently to, to Namibia for a while um, to complete my training. And, and that was a very interesting experience in all sorts of ways. Uh, and I think gave me a, a fairly, a, a pretty detailed understanding of what it was to go through that, that trajectory of a surgical training and the various stages it involved. But I was, um, I think even then I was aware of of that being what, only one possible way of looking at the world of clinical practice. And, and that, that, that sort of very high um, trauma load, if, if you like, sort of, sort of exemplified a kind of practice that involved me being in a hospital and seeing a stream of people who would come in often very seriously injured, often unconscious, whom I wouldn't really know before I had to assess them and very often operate on them. Um, and then because of the pressures of the, of, of the way things were at that time, 
in that place very often as soon as the, the patients had, had recovered enough they would leave hospital and I'd never see them again and so I got that sense of of looking uh, very intensely at a, a very sort of restricted part of each person's um, pathway if, if you like um, and so when I uh, came back from southern Africa to the UK I had to decide what to do then whether to carry on with surgery or whether to change direction and I, I really didn't know what to do so uh, I um, rather by chance answered an advertisement from a training practice in Litchfield uh, who had a, a history of having trainees who'd, who'd worked overseas um, and almost at hazard decided to spend a year as a GP trainee to see if I liked it. It was very scary because um, having spent quite a long time learning more and more about less and less in, in a way uh, I then found myself in this completely different environment where where the work was 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 it, it wasn't just the same kind of work but but more widely distributed it was a completely different kind of work I found because there I was dealing with patients who hadn't been screened by anyone they hadn't been sorted out as needing surgical treatment or any other kind of treatment um, and so I had to come to terms with taking many steps back you know a bit like a game of snakes and ladders I, I kind of st stood on the head of a snake and, and slid down to a, a place where I was very much at sea for a long long time because uh, most of the patients I dealt with their problems didn't really seem to fit into the way that I'd learned about at medical school or as a hospital trainee or even a hospital consultant but it was fascinating and I became more and more interested in what happens when you when you have the opportunity to engage with people for a short time but over a long period so I would get to know it was a practice in Wiltshire in the south, southwest of England where it was a fairly stable population in a market town and so I would see people um, I was there for almost 20 years and so I would build up a picture through a series of, of short consultations but over many years that was in a way a sort of horizontal view of clinical practice as opposed to the vertical view that I'd had um, in in high intensity hospital medicine um, and then I um, changed direction again and um, and joined Imperial and I've been there since 2000 um, so so that kind of gave me a series of different perspectives which I was able to draw on um, alongside other things that I'd done you know learning to play a musical instrument various things where I was uh, at the very early you know still very much in the shallow end of what it means to become really good at something and tried to draw on those those experiences that I'd been through in making sense of and shining a light on the experiences that I gained at second hand from the many expert people more than 20 of them in the book but far more than that I, I had conversations and spent time with uh, from from many other fields outside medicine mostly altogether to try and make sense of what it meant to become expert and that's what I used in uh, in the approach I took in the book in the end which was to um, which was to use as an anchorage point the the well-known sort of medieval guild apprentice journeyman master progression because I think that's something that people are, are broadly familiar with um, even although of course it in many ways doesn't work today but but it is a useful model I think of of a stage three stage 
um, idea where you start off knowing nothing, just doing what other people tell you to do. Then you become sufficiently skilled to go out into the world and do what you've learned to do. And then finally, you're so experienced that you can pass that on to other people who are following behind you. And I think that that model uh, is a useful one to almost act as an Aunt Sally. You know, it, it provides a model that we can engage with and explore the extent to which that works today and I think to some extent it works to another other in other ways it doesn't but it provided me with a sort of um, a sort of skeleton or an architecture that I could use to bring in these different insights that I've just talked about. Roger if I could if I could jump in here this is fascinating and it's actually not an academic pursuit this because you have developed like long-standing relationships with those crafts and masters in a whole range of different non-surgical, non-medical disciplines um, and learn from them and actually st and seem to be really excited and you seem to be you know, driven to understand what, what makes them tick. I wonder if you could share some stories of, of some, of some non-surgeon experts and what are the kind of lessons, your favourite lessons that you've learned from them in terms of how they develop their, their to be an expert? Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of them. I, I, I'll start with one who's been particularly influential called Joshua Byrne, who's a bespoke tailor. And I think this is an interesting one because this, this is a collaboration that developed completely unexpectedly. Uh, it started, I, I run a master's programme in surgical education with, with uh, my colleague Kirsten Dalrymple at Imperial. And, um, and one of the students there, uh, after she graduated from the programme, invited me to a, a party where I, I met uh, a, a woman who was a um, she was a, a, a tailor who made clothes for women. And it never occurred to me that there might be connections between the world of tailoring and the world of surgery. But but I uh, when she she said a little bit about what she she did, and a lot of it was about using a needle and thread. So so I, I thought this would be an interesting idea to explore. And it turned out that her husband, um, Joshua Byrne. Uh, was also a bespoke tailor, and so I arranged to go and see him, and um, in his in his studio in just off Savile Row in in London, um, and to begin with had a, a conversation about the things that we both do, or in my case did with with needles and thread, and I was thinking about what tailors do when they join sleeves onto jackets, and what I used to do when I was joining one bit of intestine to another, or whatever it might be, um, and it turned out that there were indeed. Uh, interesting similarities there were even more interesting differences as I found out when I tried to do uh, what I saw him doing uh, sitting more or less cross-legged in a brightly lit window uh, on his own with a straight needle and thread and, and, and doing work with, with elements of a jacket and when I tried to do that I found I was just completely incompetent I couldn't do it um, at all uh, and when I thought about that I, I realised that actually the the point of apparent connection in the needle and thread paled into, into insignificance when you thought about the areas of difference. You know, when I was sewing things together, I was part of a team, I was standing up, it was brightly lit, people were handing me things, it was, you know, it was a completely different environment. And I realised then that I wasn't, I wasn't good at sewing, I, was, I had become good at, at sewing particular, in a particular way, in particular circumstances, um, in a particular context. And so we started, we started teasing out the differences as well as the similarities between our, our worlds. But that led on very quickly to, I thought, a much more interesting conversation, which was how we related to the people our work was for. 
And when Joshua started to describe to me what the nature of a bespoke tailoring, which I had never really thought about, and I think I thought it was just a shorthand for high quality work um, or creating something that fitted somebody very well. I realised that actually there's much more to it than that because the process of bespoke tailoring from Joshua's point of view, although he is unusual, is that he's, he, he meets somebody who thinks they might want a garment. It might be a jacket or a suit or something. And the first part of the process is to establish a relationship of of trust uh, based on on uh, on integrity and skill of all kinds of things. But his first task is to listen very attentively and try and work out what that person wants, while at the same time observing them to see what they look like and how they how they hold themselves, how they move, and then trying to work out what kind of approach might be best to meet their needs. So not starting off with something that has already been made and thinking how to modify it for that person, but to start off with a blank sheet of paper and try and work out what the issue is and then come up with a provisional solution, negotiate that with the customer and then bring that, uh, that proposed solution into view through a series of fittings at intervals over several weeks where... Uh, a different kind of tailor, a, a making tailor, would 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 start gradually to put together the elements of the jacket or the trousers or whatever, so that they could then be sort of tested out at intervals, each time then dismantled into their component parts and reassembled with changes that had been made, until eventually reached something that that worked. And I thought that was very interesting thinking back to my own experience as a GP because they're very often. Uh, Unlike surgery, perhaps, people would come and neither they nor I would know quite why they'd come. They'd, they'd come, you know, they'd say, oh, I don't know what it is, but I, I think, you know, I get that feeling that something just, just isn't quite right. Uh, or, um, you, you know, something like that, which doesn't fit into clear diagnostic categories. Um, and then the, the first task was to establish that relationship of trust and confidence and the next task was to try and work out what the problem was and then after that could come up with a solution and let's say we might think it might be asthma or something like that might come up with a provisional treatment plan of some inhalers or some tests or whatever it might be and then meet again in a couple of weeks and see how, how it's gone and change it perhaps or do things differently and it seemed to me that there were really interesting parallels in that process of placing at the centre the the need to establish what the problem was and then coming up with a provisional solution that would then come into view more clearly as time went on but where that process of of turning provisionality into something definite required trust by both parties and a a, a belief that even if things didn't go as as hoped to begin with they could be put back on track or you know it was a collaboration it was a joint enterprise with the aim of reaching something that that came up with a, a satisfactory solution uh, for the person who'd come the patient or the or the customer but actually worked also for the professional and I thought this was a very interesting idea and over the years it's more than 10 years now since Joshua and I first met we've been exploring this idea more and more he's come to many of the master's sessions that I that I run and and forms a, a central part of the book and I think that idea of having a long-term 
relationship, again, another of these relationships of trust and care between him and me, I suppose, which has led, which has acted as an anvil on which I've been able to hammer out some of these ideas and test the extent to which my own experience might be applicable outside the the sort of restricted world or circumscribed world of clinical practice. And that led to uh, a sort of approach to the many other experts in this book of of trying to identify areas of, of overlap and similarity rather than being frightened off by areas of difference. Because many of the people in the book are completely different. I mean, there's a taxidermist, there's a fighter pilot, there's a hairstylist, there's a stone carver. There are all sorts of people you wouldn't necessarily think of straight away at all in connection with the world of medicine. But um, But by going back to Rachel's first point about you know, what? what's the viewpoint? I think by going away from medicine to becoming expert has provided an opportunity to widen the frame. Before we go to those other professionals, whole wide ranging group, you, you it could be my ear, but you are describing a lot of non-technical skills as well as technical. So things like listening and building trust, negotiating, being part of a team, um, I wonder if, if you can talk about development of non-technical skills, because our audience are really interested in them. Do they, does it work in the same way as technical expertise to become an expert? Well, I'm not sure that you can really separate the two, clearly, I think. I mean, I've always had a problem with, 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 with making a clear, uh, a clear demarcation between technical and non-technical skills, because I think, they are, I think there is a fusion where where they are two parts of of the same thing or to, or, 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 or 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 two out of many elements that that that, that uh, of of which being expert is is composed um because i think a lot of these uh elements that we might think of as technical skills and i think you find that with many other craftsmen too are indivisible from from things about why you're doing it and in what way and to what you, you, you know and how you are interacting with other people as you're doing it, uh, and I think that it it can be quite unhelpful to to make that to, to focus on that separation between technical and non-technical skills because it then gives you it then invites you to ignore things that should not be ignored I think or think that they only come in later when actually they perhaps need to come in right from the start, mm. um, and it's been very interesting working with uh, particularly performers in various areas. And I've, I've done a lot of work with, I jointly lead a centre for performance science between Imperial and the Royal College of Music, uh, one of our next door neighbours in London, uh, where we've been looking a lot about, about what are the aspects of performing that, uh, that transcend the specifics of playing the saxophone or performing on the on stage or whatever um and and there again when you're looking at things i don't know like performance anxiety or, or um you know the need to do things under pressure against the clock or deal or d develop resilience and, and and things when you have to recover from error all, all all these things where 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 it it isn't easy i don't think to disentangle the technical from the non-technical if, if you use that vocabulary um so i've always had anxieties about that about these these apparently clear distinctions that can sometimes eclipse 
important stuff that happens at the intersection point between those those areas do i mean i know you you you, you you've done a huge amount of work in this area does that make sense to you steve it, it does to me i know ken will want to jump in a little bit here it does it does to me because it's an artificial distinction and actually when you when you talk about some of the the non-technical skills people describe technical performance and when you ask people about their technical performance they're then describing lots of awareness and decision making and interaction with others so it, so it, it clearly is a i totally agree so we should be teaching we should be embedding the non-technical skills about how to do it in the context very early in the technical training of surgeons but i'll i'll leave to to ken to talk more about those things well i i i loved it when we were chatting one time before uh roger and you were talking about performance artists there and what you learned from puppeteers i think you mentioned and how they prep and then the the their understanding of the of the of their interaction with the audience. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go I no, no, go on. No, I was just going to say that the puppeteers are particularly interesting. I think because they they there are very strong parallels uh, between the physical aspects of of puppeteering and some areas of surgery. I think. Yeah. Um, because you know, unlike opera singers, perhaps, or, or you know, other people, there, there's a very there are. There are types of puppetry, uh, which I, I mean, I've only started learning about this, but there, there are particular types that resonate with particular types of surgical practice, I think. And so bunraku puppetry, Japanese form, where you have three puppeteers working a single puppet, a half life size puppet. And you have uh, one person doing the feet, one person doing the back and one of the hands and, and another person doing the head. Uh, and they have to work very close, physically very close together. Uh, but they have to, they have to sort of disappear. I mean, they're in full view, of course, of the audience, although they may be wearing, you know, black black clothes, so they're not quite so visible. But essentially, they have to focus not on the audience or on themselves or one another, but on the puppet, because only by doing that will they give the sense to the audience that the puppet is actually alive. And so they have to be aware of one another and one another's bodies. But they have to be aware also of having a common purpose, which is to 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 make the puppet breathe and and move as if it were alive. And they can only do that by having a a very strong sense of working as a community of a, a group of three people to do that. And I think that has strong parallels with a, 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 a an effective surgical team where you're you know let's say with open surgery where you're standing around the, the operating table and you you have a very strong awareness, don't you, of, of of, of who's with you and your assistants and who's next to you, even though you can't see them and you're not looking at them because you're looking at the operative field, all those things. And perhaps more distantly, other members of the team, of course, the scrub team, the anaesthetist, others more peripherally. There's all of that. And that, I think, has strong parallels with people who are doing delicate things with their hands with the puppetry. But there are other kinds of puppetry, for example, rod puppetry, where you're doing things at a distance using a, 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 a metal rod that's, that's two feet long or whatever it is, and you do, which is much more like um, laparoscopic surgery, I think, yeah, um, yeah. for example. And, and so there you are, you are developing sensitivities to, to feel things at a distance and to be able to do things at a distance, um, where, again, you're having to work with other people, but you're, having to, you're, you're using very high levels of manipulative skill but also very high levels of awareness of the other people in your team. And, and when I first started working with Rachel Moore, this particular puppeteer who's influenced me a lot, I invited her to come and see a simulation of a surgical procedure and to, uh, with, with her puppeteering colleagues and 
to uh, tell me what, what they noticed, really. And it was very interesting to me that what they noticed was not at all what I thought they would notice. They, they noticed all kinds of things yes. that I had either taken for granted or, yes. or, or never spotted in the first place. Um, but one of the fascinating things that then happened was I invited them to uh, one of the master's programs that, I, that I, I, I run to talk to the MED students who are surgeons in training, some of them consultants. And this one, they started off by talking about how they prepare to perform and the puppeteers and they, they uh, group of them, you know, they may know one another very well. They may not have met even um, perhaps four or five of them. And they will spend at least half an hour, often more before they rehearse, let alone before they perform. And they will they will go through a series of exercises um, where they prepare. And some of those are physical, you, you know, putting their, their hands and their fingers and their wrists through a specific set of exercises, full range of movement um, to, to limber up their, their muscles and their fingers. Uh, and some of them will be passing imaginary objects from one to the other to, you know, to, to, to be very clear about who's in the team and how they will um, how they will uh, work together. Uh, and then after that, um, Rachel turned to, to our group and said, OK, well, that's 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 what we do as puppeteers. That's how we prepare to, to perform. Um, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a silence because I think we all realised that, uh, I mean, certainly from my perspective, I, I don't think I ever thought about preparing in that way to operate. I mean, of course, you know, we scrub up, don't we? But that's framed as getting the bugs off. Uh, and I know from many experienced surgeons, it is a sort of way of sort of liminal stage where you, you move from the outside world into the operating theatre, but it's possible just to see it in terms of cleaning your hands and putting your gown on, isn't it? And and I'd never seen the need or never thought about going through a formal preparation for the physicality of operating, even though I might be leading an operation for many hours doing something really difficult, um, you know, that need great levels of precision and flexibility and, uh, and uh, you know, bringing together the team I was working with, all, all kinds of things that had many parallels with this, with the idea of giving a 90-minute puppetry performance. But it had never really occurred to me that there might be a formal stage of, of preparing physically for the task any more than it occurred to me to have a formal stage of, of winding down afterwards and, you, you know, thinking about what had happened and, you know, all, 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 all those elements. But, but the first thing that struck me was this, this physical preparation for a performance that, of course, in surgery can be very demanding, can't it? And extended and, you know, tiring and uh, very high stakes sometimes, all that kind of thing. Um, and it, I think a penny dropped with me then that, that there was all this stuff in the world of surgery that I knew about, but there was also a load of other stuff that was there all the time, but I just hadn't spotted it. And I think it takes an outside eye to notice these things. And that outside eye has helped very much by knowing nothing at all about anatomy or physiology or disease or surgical practice or anything, but coming in from a completely different angle. If I could jump in, Roger, and, and it's making me think now, hearing you speak, that there's expertise all around us in every walk of life. And a lot of it we don't see I wonder, can can anyone become an expert, or is it just restricted to people who have a particular opportunity or chance or well, skill set? I think it depends what you mean by becoming an expert. I think there's there's a difference between becoming expert and becoming an expert, which is a 
an interesting one to explore. I, I, in this book, I've framed the idea. Uh, I've, I've called, its subtitle is "Understanding the Path to Mastery," and I've, I've framed it as a as a pathway, really, um, that takes you through those stages which are artificially divided into apprentice, journeyman, and master. Obviously, in not not used in a gendered sense anymore, in the way that it would have been a while ago. But that that idea of a of a process, but it's it's not a straightforward pathway, and it's not clear. I don't think it has an end, uh, but I think what it does have is stages. Uh, I don't think they always, I think generally speaking, you can see them as a linear progression, but I don't think it's a smooth one. And I think you can go back and forward. Uh, and I think that you, to answer your question, I think anybody can become, can get further along that path than they are already. Um, but in order to become, to get a long way along that path, you need to recognise that it's going to take you a very, very long time. Um, you can't do it overnight and that you are going to need, I think, to go through the stages uh, and the transitions which I've outlined. Because if you don't go through them, I think you can get to a point where you and perhaps other people think you're better than you already are because you can get good at some of the elements uh, of that process, but not all of them. So maybe I should just outline what these stages are, if that would help. Um, but before I do that, has that answered your... It, it does, you know, before before I, I pass on, I was just thinking about the difference between expertise and expert, which I think is, is nicely articulated, or maybe you could articulate it for the audience. But then I was also thinking about about um, luck and chance and opportunity and how how people are are um, born into a certain environment and social network and and so on that gives some opportunities that that others might not have. And I was actually thinking about your early early life in South Africa, which is which clearly the, the opportunities are different to to those in in London. And if that if that plays a role in in, in people's lives, I'm sure it plays a huge role. Uh, and, and of course, some of that is stuff that you have agency that you have control over. Some of it is stuff that you have no control over. You know, where, where, where you're born, how you're brought up, all, all those things. There, there are a lot of um, a lot of things that you that you can shape, but equally a lot of things that you can't shape. But I think that understanding the the elements of this path helps you pay attention to the things that you most need to pay attention to at a particular stage that will help you get as far as you can along a path that you've chosen. And I think it's very much a question of what you've chosen because we are all of us sort of at different points along paths towards becoming expert in different areas of our lives, aren't we? Uh, and I mean, let's say most of us here and probably listening are, are in the world of surgery and, and, and have really put an awful lot of time and effort into, into moving along that path. But I'm sure we all play sports or musical instruments or, or learning other languages or doing all sorts of other things where we are also doing things that... Uh, where, where we are moving along a path, but we may never want to be, we may be learning, I, I don't know, learning Spanish in order to be able to go on holiday, but we're not intending to be professional simultaneous translators at the United Nations or whatever. You know, there's, there's, a, um, there's a, a difference in where we want to focus our energies and attention, I think. Um, but whichever way you look at it, I think... From, from from the 
from the ideas that I've gathered from these other people and from my own experience, I think the idea of spending a lot of time learning the basics of something makes a lot of sense. And that's what I've called the apprenticeship phase. And that's when you're you're there in somebody else's place in their environment and you're learning to do what they do very well and you can't do yet. And in order to do that, you have to just spend loads of time doing stuff that they tell you to do or doing stuff that you know you have to do, whether you like it or not, and often you don't like it. And all the people I've spoken to talk about those years and years when they, they're just spending, you know, hours and hours doing doing repetitive, boring stuff that actually often they think, well, why the hell can't somebody else do this? You know, it's it's not really... It's, it's just repetitive. And so the stone carver I talked about talked about months and months and months of just just being told by his master to spend, you know, hours and hours learning how to make a flat, smooth, granite, horizontal surface. And, you know, all the time he wanted to be up at the top of, 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 of ladders, sort of working on, on, on gargoyles on in, in medieval cathedrals. But he wasn't. He was sitting in his... Uh, master's workshop and just doing this boring repetitive stuff getting you know pains in his arms and, and just almost going out of his mind with boredom and then he, he says vividly that after a few months eventually he got this flat flat surface and he he proudly went to his master and said okay now can I now can I start going up ladders and working on gargles and his master said no no you, you now you need to do the same thing and get a perfectly smooth vertical surface and he almost gave up because it was just so boring but looking back on it um it turned out to be absolutely indispensable, partly because, of course, he laid the foundation of being able to do those things. And it may not be very interesting to, to make a perfectly smooth uh, horizontal surface in a flat of granite, in a, in a piece of granite just on its own. But actually, there are many times as a carver where you need to do that. Of course, you need to do that. But it also gives you the experience of having to just put up with doing boring, repetitive work that you don't particularly enjoy. But it just has to be done because otherwise you get this sense of uh, a, an unrealistic sense of entitlement that your work must always, you must always uh, find it fascinating. And actually, every kind of work has that element of stuff that you just need to do, and you need to do it well, uh, because the work requires it. You may not like it, but if you want to do good work, you have to come to terms with that. Um, and in that process, all sorts of other things happen that you don't realise at the time. You learn how to use those tools. You learn to become familiar and comfortable with things. You learn about the different kinds of material you're working with, you know, different kinds of stone and how they behave in medicine, you know, different kinds of patients and what they like, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and and you also learn to share space with people and to get along with other people, whether you like them or not, and to become part of a group and all those things that that you really only get by being there in the middle of it and doing it for a long, long time. You can't abbreviate it. You can't just do that bit in three months or something. You just have to be there and experience it. And it's a, uh, it's one of those retrospective things that doesn't really make sense at the time and you only see its value later. So that's that first stage. And But that's an interesting environment because you're protected. You're always going to make mistakes. Everyone knows that. Uh, and so you don't work on priceless materials. You're, you're not taking charge of operations on uh, on, on very sick people. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're at that stage of everybody knows you'll make mistakes, uh, and and you're protected from the uh, from the implications of those, really. But then there comes this stage, the next stage, where you 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 know enough about it to 
to to go into the journeyman stage, as I've I've called it, which was the stage where you went out and journeyed across your country. You took out into the wide, wide world the skills that you'd learnt in your master's workshop uh, and you applied your craft and you got paid for it. So you took responsibility for your own work. And I think that's the that's the stage where you where you go out and you you become an independent practitioner and and quite where that exactly how that maps onto the to the clinical world is it's it's debatable but you're essentially you're going up and you're taking responsibility for things um and and that, i think that's a fascinating stage because there are these two aspects to that 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 i i, I sort of noticed when i was thinking about this which are about your point of attentional focus uh, and this is something that came from all the all the uh, experts I've talked to, and I, I realised it made sense to me personally as well, which is that to begin with, as an apprentice, you think it's all about you. You're learning stuff, you're practising stuff, you're getting bored, but you're gradually getting better, and then you start to feel that you're really learning things. And you think, wee, that's great. You know, you pass exams, you uh, you get promoted, whatever it is, and you're proud of those things, understandably so, and you want to show off. Uh, maybe overtly, maybe, but you you want to show people what you can do. Um, but then I think when you become independent, you have to realise that actually you may feel like that, but nobody else does, because the only thing that matters to other people, patients or customers or clients or whatever, is what you can do for them. They're not interested in all those things that, that you can do just for their own sake. They want to know how what you can do can help them with the with the problem they've got or the suit they want or the uh, or the aeroplane that you're flying to take them somewhere or the piece of pottery that you've created that you want them to buy or the show that you're giving as a stand-up comic or whatever it might happen to be. And so you need to recognise that it's not about you, it's about them. And that's an insight that came to me from some of the magicians I've been working with, close-up magicians, who say that, you know, one of them said that he, he spent years and years, he spent his sort of teenage years practising and practising, making things appear and disappear in front of a mirror. Uh, and, of course, people can do that much more now with YouTube videos. You can learn pretty quickly to, 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 to do what he describes as, as magic from the elbows down, which I suppose is more the technical versus non-technical side that we were talking about earlier. Um but actually, that is completely meaningless. It's just, it's just dexterity, unless it works for an audience. And it, unless it works for an audience who, briefly, even just for a moment, you can make them believe that something completely impossible has just happened. And that's about shifting your attentional focus, he said. You have to realise that it's not about you, the performer, it's about them the audience, because that's what matters. So you've got to place your attentional focus with the audience and, it's, and look back at yourself and think how what you have become good at doing makes sense for other people. And so there's that sense of subordinating yourself to, to other people. But at the same time, and, and it seems working in the opposite direction, as, as realising it's not about you, of course, it is about you, because you're no longer just an interchangeable cipher from somebody else's workshop who's going out to do the same thing but in a wider environment in the outside world. You are developing your personality and so um, Rachel you're, you're not just an interchangeable surgical 
trainee you are Rachel and you've got your own history your own individuality Ken the same with you as a, as a more experienced surgeon and Steve you know you, you are all individuals and so that I think resonates with what the jazz musicians talk about about developing voice about developing your your individuality your recognizable style that builds on all those years and decades of playing scales and practicing the saxophone or the drums and learning repertoire and you know it all comes together in you becoming you and becoming ever more you. And I noticed this in spades when I became a, a, a GP where people would come to see me or uh, or one of my six partners in the practice, not so much because of the, the, the qualifications we had or the letters, because they, they didn't mean anything to most people and they didn't give a, um, a, a fig really about those things. What mattered to them was the relationship they had with us as individuals, I think, how we made them feel, how we engaged with them and that was about voice uh, and so there are these two things happening at the same time um, that you have to kind of I think you have to grapple with those and, and integrate them and make sense of that uh, and at the same time sort of knock that into shape through doing things for real for long enough and often enough to make mistakes and have the experience of dealing with those mistakes, even when other, especially when other people get hurt and when you get hurt, and recovering. And so all of that process takes a long time. And you can't know when those mistakes are going to happen. You, what you can say is that they, if they haven't happened, it's because you haven't been doing it for long enough, and that they will happen. Um, but you have to be there in it for long enough to allow them to happen frequently enough to develop that sort of internal sense of what it means to get things wrong and put them right. And then eventually, I think you get to the stage where you can take a different kind of responsibility, which is not only for the suit you're making, the person you're operating on, or the teapot that you're making, but for the people who are coming on the path behind you, so to speak. And that's when you go to that stage of being a master of passing it on, uh, and then it's again, it's another not about you, it's about them transition. But this time the them is not, it's not, not as I say, your patient or your customer. It is the people who you have responsibility for, where that responsibility is not just for making sure that they can do the right things with their fingers or tie the right kind of knots or fashion the right kind of spout for a teapot. But it is, it's having that bigger picture of where they are in their trajectory and what you can do to help that and how you can yeah. encourage them or support them or develop them. And that's where the more experienced people uh, listening to this, I, I, I guess, will be will be sitting because there you're putting together a whole lot of things that you've been through yourself, but bringing in also the stuff that you've read and the stuff from your colleagues and the, that sort of bigger picture about the the institution, the environment, the context, the, the social setting that you're in and, and, and people who are more experienced might be. I don't know, running training programs or, or involved in, in, in colleges of this or that or, or involved in the educational world, for example. And I think those people we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about that stage of, of, of mastery. But, but that whole process takes a very long time. And there's a danger, I think, in equating uh, individual aspects of expertise, the magic from the elbows down being able to do fantastic things with your fingers with becoming expert which I think is a consequence of going through that whole extended process 
that allows you to look at an individual part of it from the standpoint of having experienced a great deal of it so that you're not just looking at one element but you've got that whole picture inside you. Roger, that, that, this is fantastic. There's so much of this that uh, resonates so deeply. And, and, you know, what you were saying about the puppeteers and how they set it up. Also, what you um, said about the tailor and understanding the patient, you know, that's relevant to, you know, we're trying to create training and consultation skills now for surgeons to to get more of that GP experience that you described. Um, but the, the bit that really resonated with me was this journeyman phase that about the it's not about me and then finding voice that comes after that and the the it's not about me stage is seems to me it's true on so many levels it's true about whether you're thinking about the tissues you're handling rather than how you're handling them it's true about whether you're thinking about the person in front of you rather than how you're handling the person in front of you uh it, it, it uh, this resonates with caroline molton's research we had on a podcast recently um, and it's also true, you know, even on a spiritual level, you know, many people's beliefs would, would concord with that idea of when you get to the, it's not about me point, then you're really flying. But you, but you said you still have to have that consciousness of yourself and your part in helping the person, the tissues and so on. And I guess there's a big cognitive load in that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it, I think it's quite a difficult, can be quite a difficult circle to square. Uh, because you're having to do two, you're having to hold in your mind two things at the same time, and they can appear to be contradictory. So you're having to subordinate yourself, but yet develop yourself, and and and, and, and so do these two things at the same yeah. time. <clears throat> yeah. I don't think they are actually incompatible. Yeah. Uh, I think they're complementary. Right. But I think that that's easier to see in retrospect after you've been doing stuff for a long time and look back than it is at the time when you're just sure. beginning to go into that stage. Sure. And, and I'm not sure quite what the answer is, but I think being aware in advance that that is a thing um, and that it, it, I, I think that can be very helpful. And it can also be helpful in in sort of shining a bit of a light on on some of the. The, the struggles that we will go through. Yeah, of course. Stage. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. it makes it makes it clear that everyone goes through them. And trying to do something at the wrong stage, uh, or, yeah. or expecting exactly. oneself to do something at the wrong. I, I think having wrong unrealistic stage. expectations, yeah. and I think I think one of those things that's really important and that I learned particularly as a GP was about um, improvisation yeah. and the um, the ability already the need to come to a, an encounter with a uh, a sort of open-minded approach yes enough skills and flexibility you, yeah to draw on whatever you think is necessary yeah. for the for the case in point and that may be stuff that you already know you know you may have to reach out uh, to particular bits of medical knowledge that you either have or you need to look up or you need to get a colleague but it might also be other ways of thinking you might need to think okay well what am i missing here or yeah, perhaps yeah, i could yeah. involve my colleague from the housing department yeah. or, you know and, yeah, and yeah. actually you need to have a load of stuff inside that is sufficiently familiar to you to be able to put your hands on it when you need it but i think you also need to be not too anxious about things you need to, yeah. to, to, to sort of calm down breathe out and 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 go with it 
And Roger, I'm afraid we're we're pushing up the clock up, up against the clock a little bit. And I just wanted to save time if we could for Rachel. You had an interesting question. Yes, I I know that a lot of your work has focused on simulation, um, and I'm particularly interested in how this can be used to augment learning throughout training and beyond. And I'm just really fascinated um, about the anecdotes from other professions and your own insights, perhaps how you would view the role of simulation in promoting expertise in this kind of journeyman phase and perhaps even how we could do it better than we, we currently do. Well, I think, uh, I mean, often I think simulation is seen as a thing that people then slot into. A pre-designed place and a pre-designed set of procedures and things like that that people go to to learn this or that and it certainly was uh, less so now I think but there has been a sort of sense that that's where you you go to learn what to do when somebody has a major injury or has a heart attack or something like that I, I think turning that round and thinking uh, how can simulation help us look at specific areas we're interested in brings together what I've just been saying about that pathway and say okay well what 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 kinds of simulation based approaches can we use to look at specific areas and it might be uh looking at the acquisition of, of basic skills and of course that's where a lot of simulation stuff has been focused with with undergraduate and early postgraduate training and skill centers and things like that and of course there's a lot of value there with the apprenticeship kind of stage i think but i think that there's a lot of very interesting stuff still to be done in, in thinking about how could we use simulation to look at these ideas about it's not about you, you know, and, and giving people the opportunity to try and experience what it feels like when they make that shift from uh, from a, a natural uh, focus on themselves and, and wanting to demonstrate to people and being assessed and things like that to thinking what does it feel like and how can you how can you think about changing your point of attentional focus and and yet um, and, and yet still develop your own your own uniqueness. Um, I think there is a lot of opportunity for using simulation to experience things going wrong, uh, but not 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 the ones that not only the ones that are, that are, are well known sort of tropes in the simulation world, but thinking creatively about what it might mean to be up against uh, up up at the borders of what you feel comfortable with. Or what it feels like to be to get that feeling that you're you're going into uncertain territory or something. I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity to use simulation as a as a way of trying out things that you wouldn't be able to in a real environment, such as um, improvising, such as uh, you, you know bringing unorthodox approaches. And the other one that I found very helpful, very interesting, is using simulation as a way of presenting to outsiders aspects of a world that to us as insiders is second nature or what we think of as salient in our world by by developing simulations of a particular kind of operation, let us say, and then inviting, in our case, you know, puppeteers and other of our residents in a, uh, our performers in residence is a combat pilot. Uh, we've got one who's a, who's a forensic scientist. We've got one who's an orchestral percussionist, uh, for example, or inviting these people to come and look. An, another one is a, a, an embroiderer who spent a couple of years as the lace maker in residence at the vascular surgery unit at Imperial. Very interesting. Um, and these people are interesting because if they experience a world which to us is authentic from a surgical point of view, it turns out they see completely different things. They don't see uh, you, you know, the, the details of the anatomy around the DJ flexure or whatever, they have no interest in that. But what they might see is is how people work 
together with other people under pressure. They might see, in the case of the lace maker, colour and consistency and, and, and sort of texture and all kinds of things that can make you feel, think differently about anatomy, I think. Um, the percussionist, very interesting, um, talks fascinatingly about how people uh, interact in, in, in space with, with complex pieces of apparatus under pressure um, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a shared environment where you have many, many different people with many different instruments and many different sticks and things and, and sort of thinking through in advance how to shape and adapt an environment to make it as good as it can possibly be for the work that you know you're going to need to do and the unexpected things you might have to do. And I think very often we go into clinical environments and just take what's there rather than exerting control over how things are organised. Um, and there are lots of opportunities like that that I think simulation gives of, of, of uh, inviting people who would not have access, and nor should they, to actual uh, clinical environments, um, but, but presenting an, an, a representation of those environments that invites their observations and contributions and then allows you to make changes and see how those play out with those people. And I think that that's a, a hugely, um, it's a very creative and very potentially very fruitful area of simulation. But it does require a reframing of what simulation is all about, because it's, it's then not so much replicating what is already done, but using simulation as an investigative lens for exploring what might be done. Roger, these are fascinating insights as well. And I, I thoroughly recommend people to check out the book expert understanding the path to mastery before we leave today i know that you are really passionate about your masters um, and also a new partnership with between the imperial masters and the and the faculty of surgical trainers at the college tell us more about that yes this is very exciting so uh for the last oh, well, 15 years now i've been leading um the uh, Im imperial masters in education in surgical education program and for most of that time co-directing the course with my colleague Dr. Kirsten Dalrymple, uh, and until uh, now it's been a face-to-face -face, uh, course. Uh, we're very excited now because we are now uh, reframing it and, and um, just about to launch uh, uh, an online and blended uh, programme leading through Certificate and Diploma to Masters at Imperial uh, and collaborating with the Faculty of Surgical Trainers at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh as our partners. And we're very excited about this because it's a, it's a new programme that will allow people to attend from all over the world uh, online uh, as a wholly online um, certificate and diploma if they wish. There is a, a blended option for the diploma and then a face-to-face -face option for the uh, master's programme for people who would like to, to, to take their studies on to, to, to that. Um, but it's a programme where we explore a lot of these ideas around, of course, drawing on educational theory and, and, and all the stuff that you, would, that you would need to to know about from a scholarly point of view, but also inviting people to think differently about what it is to become a surgeon educator and that, that sort of human process of, of not just acquiring, um, acquiring knowledge and specific skills or research techniques or, or whatever, but putting that all together in a, a way that we've been talking a lot about these intersections between the world of surgery and the performing arts and the crafts and things. This is another one where we're bringing, we're bringing the world of surgery into contact with the world of education, um, the humanities, the social sciences, those very different often ways of thinking about scholarship and about the world in general and, and bringing those uh, into, in, to, to, together to 
create something that is specifically looking at what it is to become a surgeon educator and doing that in conjunction between Imperial and the Edinburgh College I think is very exciting um, it's a very exciting opportunity there is information on our website we'd be delighted to hear from anybody who would like to find out more and particularly come and join our program so please do um, do that if you'd be interested and please do contact me if you'd like further information and my email is r.kneebone at imperial.ac.uk That's wonderful, thank you so much Roger it's been a fascinating hour uh, discussing uh, the path to mastery with you Thank you very much. We're really it has indeed. It's yeah, been a... Roger, thank you so much. You've really broadened our minds. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you all of you for inviting me.